0: Lord, we recognize that you have never changed. You are the same yesterday, today, forever. Lord, you do not sleep or slumber. Lord, we needed it, but you didn't. So, Lord, from your perspective, nothing in this world has changed. You see it all together. But, Lord, for us, things change all the time. But we can rest in you, Lord, that regardless of, of what comes our way. We know that you still are a savior. For those of us who have. Repented of our sins. and Those of us who have. Believed the gospel. The gospel of salvation. You are our savior. You will remain our savior. For now and forever. And now Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us. Understand your word. Equip us. That we might be good witnesses. For the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40 is what we're going to be diving into today. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, the Corinthian correspondence, these letters, are pastoral letters from Paul. So aren't you glad for these letters? See, the Corinthians were real people dealing with real problems and tragically committing real sins. You know anybody like that? See, I don't know about you, but when I see a Bible verse out and about it, usually comes from one of these two books, these letters. Here, For example, that great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And some people have said it's the greatest description of love in all of literature, either secular or sacred. And it seems that no matter what kind of wedding that a person has, whether secular or sacred, whether even atheistic, guess what is usually said at that wedding? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13. But in our passage for today, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 15 to uh, 25 to 40, we're going to see Paul deal with a question. And the question is, what about engaged people? Should they tie the knot or not? And of all the things that Paul could have addressed of all the questions the Corinthians wanted answers for, it was this one. What about engaged folks? What about betrothed they needed to know an answer. But as we will see that Paul did not give a direct command from the Lord. However, this is Paul's divinely informed counsel. In other words, Paul laid out no hard and fast rule here, but he did give counsel. But, the time, but he did take the time, though, in his counsel. He gave time to, to give the timeless principles of how Christians should live their lives to give glory to. To the Lord, especially in marriage. Now, like we talked about last week, Paul gave counsel for everybody to serve the Lord in the condition in which God called them, in the condition in which they found themselves. In this passage, he's telling the Corinthians who have a to have a single heart, whether they have a wedding band on or not. So let's jump in at verse 25. Now let's read the first verse. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, Paul said in his judgment, his counsel was reliable, it was wise, it was believable. They can trust Paul's wisdom in this matter. Now, again, let me talk about what we talked about last week concerning God's call. It's another place where Paul gave wise counsel. I shared that Paul saw the call of God. His call was a call to salvation and not so much an individualized plan for a Christian's life. And how we are to live our lives as Christians, it's based on the wisdom that God has given us in his word. And wisdom is what Paul is going to give to the betrothed. And we will call that engagement, couples who are engaged. Now, Paul will say that regardless of what a betrothed or engaged person does, whether he or she breaks off that engagement or gets married, it's not an issue of sin. And again, let me say, a person who's engaged, they need to be engaged to who? As a Christian? Another Christian, right? That's that's just a given here. Now, I mentioned last week that the will of God is not a vocation, it's not a location, or it's not even marital status, it's an attitude. That says, Lord, I'm so grateful for you saving me. And I want to show my gratitude by keeping your commandments. What did Jesus say? He who loves me keeps my commandments. You are my bridegroom. I am part of the bride of Christ. And even those of us who are men in this group, we are part of the bride of Christ too. That sounds kind of strange, but that's who we are. That's what we're part of. So if Paul's counsel is reliable and wise for engaged couples, then what is that counsel? Let's look at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So what's Paul's wisdom to engage couples? Don't, as in don't get married. Don't get married. Why not? Isn't it God's will for people to get married, to be fruitful and multiply? It is God's will. So why did Paul say this? Can you imagine a betrothed couple in the church in Corinth? (laughs) Paul, are you kidding us? We're getting married next month. The plans are made. And your wise counsel now is to turn the tux back in, to sell the wedding dress, to cancel the preacher, and to call off the caterer? Paul, why are you telling us this? Well, there were definite reasons for Paul's wise counsel here. But he couched it in terms of a sense of urgency. Notice that he did not make this rule a rule for all couples that are engaged for all time. No, there's a certain qualifier here. He said this, in view of the present distress. See, this was to be a temporary arrangement. Not permanent. So what was it that led Paul to see this particular time as one of distress? There are two reasons. One was spiritual and one was practical. Now, Paul saw everything through the lenses of spiritual reality. Now, that's we can expect that from Paul, right, as we read his writings, and we ought to do the same. And we can get a clue about his spiritual reality and the glasses that he wore, so to speak, in verse 29, for example. He says, the appointed time has grown very short. And then in verse 31, he says this, the present form of this world is passing away. Paul had a conviction. The Lord's return was oh so very close. And this is what compelled him in his ministry. He wanted to be ready for that day that the Lord came back and he wanted the churches he started and those he mentored To be ready as well for the Lord's return. Now we can see that Paul was convinced that the Lord was coming back in his lifetime because he believed that when we read the letters that he wrote in the order in which he wrote them. See, Paul wrote 13 letters over a period of 15 years. Now, if you do the math, you see that. His first two letters. And by the way, the first letter he wrote wasn't Romans, okay? As we kind of look at, we say, oh, you know the first letter of Paul that was Romans. No, it wasn't. The first letter that Paul wrote was to the Thessalonians. And then his second letter was to Thessalonians as well. And so in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about something, the return of the Lord. The Lord is coming back. He's coming back soon. And the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, he said the same thing. The Lord is coming back again. He referred to the Lord's return. He taught them that the people, the Thessalonians. Now, five years after Paul wrote the Thessalonian letters, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And now he's saying again, the time is short. The Lord's coming back. My point in all this is that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write his letters with the return of Christ completely consuming his mind his thoughts, he continually longed for the Lord to come back. And here, Paul desperately wanted the Corinthians to join him in his longing and preparing for Christ's return. And this was such an amazing thing to Paul when you think about what happened with Paul's life. See, remember that that Paul was a sold-out Jewish man, was he not? He was fully Torah observant. He loved God And he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He really was looking for the Messiah, even as a non-Christian rabbi. And so when the Messiah actually met him on the road to Damascus, what happened to Paul? Everything changed. One writer described Paul's understanding of all that Jesus' death and resurrection brought about, all that his ministry brought about. He described it this way. He said, the cross... Of Christ is the world-shattering event that redefined the character of life in the world, and His resurrection is the clear signal that the end of the world, as Paul knew it, was coming, was was close at hand. See, when we when we have our times of of Easter sunrise, for us it's just another year, isn't it? You know, we have a celebration, and even for those who do the Easter icons, we do that as well, and all that kind of stuff. But for us, it's just another year for us. It's just another time. We'll remember Christ died and rose again, but not for Paul. Paul was enamored. Paul was consumed with Christ and everything that Christ, his resurrection, his death and resurrection brought about. He was absolutely consumed by this. The author goes on to say the father's raising of Jesus. Is the first fruits. It's a guarantee that assures the full harvest is soon to follow. End of quote. The end of the world was coming soon because Jesus was coming soon. Paul thought, and Paul did not want the Corinthian believers to have anything distract them from being ready. And we will see how Paul fleshes out these marriage distractions as he will say to those who had hearts in their eyes to the betrothed, to the engaged. And we're going to see these in these verses today. Well, the second reason why Paul desired for engaged Corinthian Christians to refrain from getting married at the time had to do with Corinth itself was going through. See, you know, we look at we look at the scripture, but we sometimes forget that that was written in the context of life, of real life. So what was Corinth going through? Like our world today, They were going through some very hard times. They actually were going through a huge famine, an actual one, and all the economic hardship that went along with that. Paul, in essence, says, and I will pose the question this way as a question. If you get married, how are you going to feed your family? That's kind of what he was kind of referring to. But, you know, it's almost as though we can hear those who were under Paul's pastoral care. Imagine this couple being in in his office, so to speak. And the couple would say, as Paul would ask them, would you please reconsider being married? They would say something like, well, you know, love will see us through. You know, love will keep us together. With big smiles, a couple looks at one another and they say in unison, we'll live on love. No problem. It's great. But now those of you who are married, did you ever think that? Did you ever say that? And then the pastor would look at you and say something like, just you wait. Love's not going to pay the bills. (laughs) Love's not going to put food on the table. Isn't young love grand? And so given the crisis of the hour and his conviction that Christ was coming back, Paul lays out his counsel. Of staying single. And he said, basically, stay single if possible in verses 27 to 38. Paul has something to say about widows as well in verses 39 to 40, and we're going to talk about that as well, just very briefly. But in verses 27 to 31, we see Paul sharing the heart of his counsel. He gives the Corinthians divine wisdom found in this passage, and it's summed up in the title of the message. Whether married or or single, or engaged, have a single heart, a heart that is undivided and fully devoted to the Lord. Now, in verses twenty-seven to the first part of twenty-nine, Paul wants to assure the engaged Corinthian Christian believers that his counsel is wise, and that getting married, though, is not is not sinful, even if you decide to go ahead. Paul basically says, and get married against. My wisdom, it's not sin that you do this. But based on the reality of the present circumstances, the soon coming of Jesus and the economic problems that they had, Paul wanted to let these happy couples know that there was more trouble than normal that lay ahead. But again, it would not be sinful to get married. Let's read these verses. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And a betrothed woman, if she marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. The bottom line seems to be it's not sinful to get married at this point. But is it wise to do so? Now, 1 Corinthians 29 to 31, Paul now describes how we need all of us to live our lives. Remember that old song that goes in part like this? The world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Remember that song? That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. As we will see here, Paul counseled them and us told everything we have and are with an open hand. We're not to put all of our eggs in one basket. We're not to let our roots grow too deeply. Pick a proverb. But we need to travel light in this world, not bogged down with all that the world offers us. Now, Paul here describes what traveling light looks like. And let's read these verses. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Hmm. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. So we should just go throughout life just kind of like flat? Is that what he's talking about? Not at all. What's Paul saying here? It may sound confusing unless both husband and wife have a single heart. Marriage is an exclusive relationship, yes, designed to complement and complete one another. In a marriage relationship that truly honors the Lord, Paul said to live as though they did not have a wife or or, or have a husband. Now, what this simply means is that the one's spouse is not to be at the center of the life of the marriage. Who is? Christ is to be at the very center. Here is God's truth in marriage. Now, those who are going to get married maybe one day or those who already are. Here's the truth. Whether it's husbands or wives, we need to be careful that we don't make our husband or wife the center of our lives and risk making them idols. Though marriage is an exclusive relationship, it's not to be an idolatrous one. Husbands and wives follow the Lord together with Christ at the center. And we're also not to make our marriages the emotional center of our world as well, as it all depends on the emotional state of our husband or wife. See, we've heard the expression, guys, right? Happy wife, happy life. we have heard this. But if that's all we live for as husbands, then we've missed the boat. See, now, what I'm about to say, the ladies here are going to be upset, but let me say that anyway, we don't live to make our wives happy. That's just the way it is. It's great when she is. And it's great when, when husbands are happy as well. But if we have a single heart, we're not going to be looking for happiness anyway. Because joy is what we're after. And guess who cannot give us joy? Our husband or our wife cannot give us joy. See, joy is part of what? The fruit of the Spirit of God. Joy is sourced in the Lord. If both husband and wife have single hearts, they will find their joy in him, not in them. They will not expect their spouse to provide something that they truly cannot give. The most that a spouse can give to the other one is happiness. And how long does happiness last? <laughs> Until the next emotional change, which could be in five seconds. Now, Paul mentioned mourning here as well. We're we're supposed to not mourn or act as though that we aren't going to mourn. If I have a single heart, my world does not fall apart when my wife Kitty mourns. If she has a single heart, her world does not fall apart when I mourn. As in joy, Christ is the ultimate source of our comfort when we mourn. Our wife, our husband can surely assist in this but we cannot look to them to be the ultimate comfort when our world comes crashing in on us. And now we come to the issue of material goods and even how married couples are to operate in the world. If we who are married only live for one another and our happiness and meaning ends at the front door, then materialism far too often takes hold. But if husband and wife have single hearts, and the Lord's priorities for material things become the priorities for their home, then Jesus is pleased. And he said it best this way in Matthew 6.33. In Matthew 6.33, by the way, is the hallmark of a single heart. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's been said that money is the number one cause of divorce. Well, I beg to differ with this. Failure to trust one another regarding finances where neither husband nor wife has a single heart can be a major cause of divorce. See how a couple handles money reveals whether they have single hearts, undivided loyalty to Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And so Paul wraps up this section with another nugget of truth. For the present form of this world is passing away. As great as a young or a more seasoned marriage is, whether the couple have 10 kids or no kids, whether there's a four-figure or seven-figure income, regardless of the material condition of their house or vehicles, everything is in the process of changing, is it not? And usually for the worst. See, we all get older, and you young folks don't know what I'm talking about yet, but you will, (laughs) When we get out of bed in the morning, those of us who are older, we can feel the age, can't we? (laughs) I can say, yes, yes. Our bodies do break down. Those of us who have kids, they grow a little bit more each day. And then come the grandkids and they make us tired. I know this. Material things wear out. Money takes a hike. How often do we have more month than money? These are all signs that we live in a fallen world. But Paul was looking forward to the return of Jesus. And he reminds those who are married of what they know so well and the betrothed of what they were getting themselves into to hold the most precious things in life, marriage and family with an open hand, because this world is dying. And it and we need are in desperate need of renewal. We need ultimate salvation. And all those who have a single heart, Long for it. And hallelujah, our bridegroom is coming back and he will make all things new. Can't you see this? Do you long for it? Now, in verses 32 to 35, Paul's desire is to help the Corinthian believers and us as well maintain a single heart. When he says he wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. Here he gives the betrothed in their midst a dose of reality. Let's look at these verses. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. That's just a fact of life. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In a nutshell, Paul says this, you can choose what you can be concerned about. Whether a man or woman as a Christian single with a single heart, they have one concern. And what is it? It's to please the Lord. I think of Brother Rudy, remember Rudy? He left us a little while ago to to go to a fantastic ministry. Not that this ministry wasn't, but he's in a fantastic ministry now. And as a single man, he was content in his station in life and was available to serve the Lord 24-7, was he not? He had no one to answer to, no one to check in with. If he needed to spend late nights ministering to families, guess what he was able to do? He's able to do just that. He didn't have to worry about his wife or kids and what was going on in their lives. On the other hand, a married man is to be concerned with pleasing his wife. And a wife is concerned about pleasing her husband. But when a husband or wife is not concerned about this, then disaster surely follows. True story. A bride-to-be and a groom-to-be were sitting in Pastor Bill's Office, the names were changed to protect the guilty, okay? Both of them were Christians. Both of them wanted to go to the mission field. John was uber committed. That's what Jane loved about him. And Pastor Bill was excited about them going to the, to the Middle East as missionaries. They were very, he was very excited about this until, until Pastor Bill began to ask John about the concerns he had for his bride's welfare. And though Pastor Bill wanted John and Jane to be missionaries to the Middle East, Pastor Bill sensed something was not quite right with John. And so Pastor Bill wisely began to probe John's heart. And he asked this question. If Jane had health problems and you needed to come back from the Middle East and take care of her for a long period of time, what would you do? Well, John said he would make arrangements for his wife to return back to the States, but he himself would stay in the Middle East. I see some eyes going like, what are you kidding? Well, Pastor Bill was livid. and He about kicked them out of their office, out of his office. And he never supported them going to the Middle East, and rightly so. But they did find an alternative way of going to the Middle East, and they're there to this day. And it's my understanding that Jane is absolutely miserable. She's had a couple of miscarriages as well. It's not been good in her life. And we all know that the Middle East does not exactly take too kindly two women. They are fourth-class citizens, including her. Now, this is a tragic example of what a single heart does not look like. How many people in Christian service have destroyed their marriages and their families because they have chosen to not please their husband or their wife because they cling to a distorted view of, of what the ministry field was. It's not just those who are in full-time Christian work, as we call it. See, Paul made it clear. The husband needs to tend to his wife's needs and the wife to her husband's. The term roommate comes to mind when that does not happen. See, when the husband neglects his wife's needs and the wife her husband's, they fail in what the Lord would have them do in their marriage. See, when Christians get married, their husbands, their wives become their number one ministry. Not exclusive, but their priority. But there are problems, even in the godliest of marriages. Even at their best, neither husband or wife are, per, are exactly perfect. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yes. On their wedding day, they're in front of the preacher. They exchange vows. They pronounce husband and wife. They go on their honeymoon, then they come back and they begin to live together. And he discovers that things are not quite as how he remembered them, remembered her when they were dating. And she discovers that he has these disgusting habits. What to do? Just what Paul said, both husband and wife need to maintain a single heart, an undivided devotion to whom? To the Lord. Now, Gary Thomas wrote a great book describing what I call the life laboratory of marriage relationships. It's called Sacred Marriage. And Those who aren't married and those who want to be married and those who are married, I recommend the book. It's great. The subtitle is at the form of a question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? I love that. It's fantastic. As anyone who's been married for any length of time knows... Marriage stretches a person. Marriage reveals him or her. And should children come along, the revelation of who he or she is becomes even more pronounced. Isn't that true? God's design for marriage is for him to use a husband and wife's life and vice versa to develop Christ-like character in them, which is God's goal for every Christian. I can tell you what God's will for your life is. It's Christ-likeness. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this. And we know that all, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Christ's likeness is what the goal is. That's God's goal for our lives. And marriage is a great. Laboratory to make that happen. (laughs) If marriage is to be what God wants it to be, both husband and wife must have a single heart. Undivided loyalty to Christ. And then in verses 36 to 38, we come full circle again. Again, Paul is very down to earth. He also understands one of the purposes for marriage. He understands human nature. And one of the purposes for marriage is a holy outlet for sexual passion, as he counseled earlier in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. Except for extremely rare cases, God has given every person a desire for sexual activity. You don't have to say yes or no, but you know what I'm talking about. It is good and right within the context of marriage. It is a great thing. So let's read these verses to see what Paul is talking about. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul's counsel is straightforward. In light of their economic circumstances and Paul's conviction that Christ was coming back soon, Paul invites the groom-to-be to to rethink of his lifelong commitment to his bride-to-be. Paul wants him to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if he finds that his natural desires become too much of a distraction then it's a good idea to get married, is what he's saying here. He who marries his betrothed does well. They haven't sinned. Again, it's an honorable thing to get married. It is normal and right to do so. However, if this man, this this bride or groom-to-be supposedly, heeds Paul's advice and foregoes marriage and therefore sexual activity, then he will do even better. The result is that he will not consummate the marriage and their relationship will go no further than in an engagement. In other words, he will break it off. And after having laid out his wise counsel to the betrothed, Paul now turns his attention to widows and by application, widowers in verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. Now, Paul gives a green light to the widow and the widower. Get married again. You can do this. But with this one stipulation, it's the same one that a single Christian woman has before she gets married the first time. Only get married to a believer, not a non-believer. Paul talks about this. Don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers. But just because she's free to get married again does not mean that she must. In Paul's opinion, even a widow would be happier if she stays a widow. Now, Paul knows what he's talking about because he himself was single, probably a widow when he wrote this letter. See, the widow is now free from marital responsibilities to serve the Lord with an undivided devotion to the Lord. And in verse 40, Paul is simply saying that he wanted to remind the Corinthians that his words were not merely his opinion, but they were divinely informed counsel. Indeed, it was counsel. That's what it was, but it was wise counsel. And wisdom, of course, is putting divine knowledge to practical use. Again, he says, in view of present circumstances. So what can we make of this passage? Indeed, all of chapter 7. Paul's bottom line is to have a single heart undivided in his or her devotion to the Lord, no matter the situation, the relationship, or social status. But that's a small picture. There's a bigger picture here, and that's unity. Unity in the body of Christ. Imagine every follower of Jesus living a life with undistracted loyalty to the Lord. What would that that be like? What would that look like? What if every person in the body of Christ lived with that undistraction? What would that be like? What about a glimpse as we see how the Godhead interacts? That's what unity is supposed to look like in the body of Christ. See the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all giving honor, all giving support as it were, all encouraging as it were, having unbroken fellowship with the other members of the one divine essence. All are involved, for example, as members of the Godhead in seeing to it that the will of God is carried out. I think of prayer, for example. When we pray, number one, Paul tells us that we as human beings don't know how to pray as we ought. So who prays for us? The Holy Spirit prays for us. Guess who else prays for us? Jesus. He prays for us too. And what about salvation? Salvation of lost people who are on their way to hell. And we, too, at one time were. How does the Trinity involve itself and himself in this? God the Father oversees it. The Lord Jesus purchased it. And the Holy Spirit convicts and regenerates us and guides us and leads us and makes us more like Christ. All three members of the Trinity are involved in salvation. So what does unity look like for us at Grace United especially? What would it be like if we had a single heart, undivided loyalty to the Lord in our midst? For one thing, we would all be concerned about one another's welfare, wouldn't we? We would step out of our comfort zone for the sake of unity and undivided loyalty to the Lord and actually ask people some questions. What would those questions be? How are you really doing? What's going on? What can I pray for you about? What needs do you have? How can I meet those needs? We would pray for one another. We would forgive one another. We would love one another. We would seek to make disciples as our priority, as we ourselves are diligently, obediently obeying the Lord so that we can teach others, other disciples, everything that he has commanded us. In our marriages, as husbands and wives with single hearts, we would seek to serve our husband, our wife, in the ways that the Lord would have us do. We would invest our material things in the kingdom of God and his righteousness instead of hoarding things just for our families. As singles, we would seek what the Lord's concerns are. How can I serve the Lord right where I am right now? As youth, how can you learn to honor your mom and dad while you're still under their roof? See, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, that he is to be an example to others in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Young person, you can apply this to your home, in front of your older siblings, and in front of your parents as well. Now, we can go on, but you can see how important a single heart is. A single heart brings everything together in perfect unity. Isn't that God's desire? Isn't that his design? So what does it take to have a single heart? Undivided loyalty to the Lord. First it takes having our sins forgiven in Christ. We need to repent of our sins and go his way. Jesus said, come to me. That means we need to stop going our own way. We need to believe the gospel. And what's the gospel? God reigns. Salvation is purchased by Christ. We enter into the family of God and live that way as God's son, as God's daughter. The next, as children of God We gain a single heart by understanding who God is, who we are, and how we are to live in his world. And how do we do that? We take God's word into our lives. Intake. We hear it. We read it. We study it. We memorize it. We meditate on it. This is how we gain a single heart. We also pray. As God talks us through through his word, we talk to him through prayer. There's a lot that can be said about that, but at least we can adore God for who he is. And as we adore God for who he is, we begin to make ourselves small. Just like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? He said, woe is me. So we we then begin to confess and repent from our sins. Then we give him thanks for what he's done specifically in our lives. And then we ask him for thanks. Jesus gave us a prayer promise in John 15, 7. He said, if your words abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever it is that you want, and I will give it to you. That's his prayer promise. So that the Father can be glorified and fruit can be continued, fruit that will remain. Jesus will answer that kind of a prayer. We also develop a single heart by having true fellowship with other Christians. As I mentioned, let's be prayerfully concerned about one another. And there's nothing like telling people who don't know Jesus who Jesus is. Isn't that true? Someone had to tell you, tell me. You know, we ought to say this. We ought to think this way. If God can save me, he can save my loved one. He can save my family member. He can save my classmate. He can save my friend. Are you praying toward that end? Author Philip Yancey paints a great picture of what, unity can and should look like as we strive to have a single heart, undivided devotion to the Lord. And here's what he says, and with this, I'll close. He says, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi, had daily given thanks that he was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, even miracles can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive however ineptly, to mix men and women with different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. When we come together as a congregation, we can engage with one another. That's why I want us to be together. I don't like the the 10 here and 10 there, etc. I don't like that. We need to be together. The church gathering is where infants and grandparents Unemployed and executives, immigrants, and blue bloods can come together. Nancy continues, Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? Indeed, only to the degree where we all have a single heart, undivided devotion to the Lord, is the degree that we can not only experience unity, but truly will desire it. For the sake of Christ, may we have a single heart, regardless of our station in life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you so much for Paul's wise counsel and for the eternal truth that we are to live our lives looking to you, expecting your soon return, having nothing to distract us, even in the most important, valuable relationships of our world, in our lives, marriage and family. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its practicality. I thank you for its wisdom. And I thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit who can enable us to apply these things to our lives. I pray, Lord, that you'll teach us what it means to have unity, really unity, Lord. That, Lord, we will we will have a single heart, undivided loyalty to you. Again, thank you for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for your power, the power of the Spirit that can enable us to do this. And, Lord, I pray as we sing now that we will sing again with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love you and that we will serve others or serve you by serving others this week. In Jesus' name, amen.